Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. My name is Stephen Beatty. I am the former review editor at Quill Inquirer magazine, and I'm currently a freelancer out of Stratford, Ontario. It's my great pleasure to be able to talk to Alexander, who has been one of my favorite Canadian short story writers since his debut with Light Lifting in 2010. And it's been a long time coming, but the new book, Animal Person, is out from McClellan and Stewart, and it is every bit as good as its predecessor. <laughs> To give you a, a quick introduction to the author, Alexander McLeod was born in Inverness, Cape Breton, and raised in Windsor, Ontario. His first collection, Light Lifting, was a national bestseller, won an Atlantic Book Award, and was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, and the Thomas Head Rattle Fiction Award, as well as the Commonwealth Book Prize. In 2019, he won an O. Henry Award for his story, Lagomorph, which is included in the new volume. That was originally published in Granta, and McLeod holds degrees from the University of Windsor, the University of Notre Dame, and McGill University. He currently lives in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and teaches at St. Mary's University in Halifax. Alexander McLeod, thank you for joining us today to talk about Animal Person. Thank you, Stephen, uh, for, for having me. Thank you to the Ottawa Writers Festival for hosting us, and just personally, uh, I just, for all you listeners out here, I just want to express my long, long standing gratitude for Stephen and all he's done for, for Canadian literature and, and for all of us writers trying our best out here and for publishers, uh, Canadian literature has no greater advocate than you, Stephen. So I am grateful, grateful to be here with you. Those are very kind words. Thank you so much. And uh, as I said, you know, it was one of my privileges to be able to talk to you when light lifting first came out. And it's an equal privilege to be able to talk to you about animal person. Um, <laughs> I was very gratified to find out when I first heard about this book that it was another collection of short stories, because the worry is that, you know, a great short story writer appears on the scene. And then the debut collection basically presages their their move into the novel. But I gather that at this point, at least, you don't have an interest in the novel form. Why do you keep returning to the short story? Well, um, I think I'm, uh, I teach literature. And so I see, I teach all these forms, all these different genres. Right. And I love the way the short story is positioned between um, the the capacities of the poem, the, the work you can do with language and rhythm and image in in a poem, and then the narrative arsenal of the of the novel, characters, plot, scenes. Right. So I'm not against the novel. I am going to try to write a novel, but uh, but um, my life has been structured by these sorts of intensities uh, in short fiction. And so I think there is an intensity you can hit in a short story that you can't hit in a novel and you can't hit in a poem. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to pitch it kind of right down the middle. <laughs> I have talked to short story writers who suggest that the short story has a greater affinity with poetry than it does with the novel. Are you in agreement with that? Well, I, I am in agreement with it. One, one of my friends here says, 
th those are your your stories are just poems that have a greater affinity for the right hand margin. <laughs> like like, a, like you just you just go over there uh, further than I would. Uh, but um, but I think I think that short story writers definitely understand that you don't have a limitless amount of time and it's sure. not a it's not it's not the same concept of leisure if that makes sense i don't mean to say that novels are leisurely but they're consumed in a different they're consumed in a right. different way for sure so uh, a short story is i think lots of people lots of novel readers who don't like stories uh sometimes they don't like them because they don't have that duration um but yeah there are there are other advantages there perhaps I also find that that in my experience, at least short stories are a more challenging form, both for the reader and the writer. I mean, certainly for a writer, you, you know, every word counts and there's nowhere to hide, right? With a novel, if you've got 300 pages and you go wrong on page 52, you can probably write the ship in a few pages. You don't have that luxury with a short story. Yeah, mistakes jump out. Mistakes yeah. definitely jump out more critically in in short stories and diversions uh as i teach them i was like well we can't we don't have room for this much exposition in a in a in a short story but sometimes novelists do beautiful things in backstories and tons and right. tons of exposition right. so i'm not I, I do think that each form has its strengths and you're and as an artist um as an artist you're trying to take your material and match it to the strengths of the of the genre so there's a famous bit book out here um, um the glace bay miners museum by sheldon curry it was turned into margaret's museum the film but that was a poem a short story a novel a screenplay like it, it, it the same image was used right. six times and every time you used it it changed a little bit so You've also talked about your affinity for uh, Alice Munro, who once said that she wrote short stories because she was a mother and she didn't have a lot of time. So, you know, this was what she could write in between the household chores, doing the, you know, dealing with the children and so on and so forth. And I know you yourself uh, have a family and had small children when you, you came to publish the first book. Did that sort of practicality factor into your choice of genre or? Well, the thing about a short story is it ends. <laughs> it, has end. it has to end. So, uh, yeah, sometimes a lot of the stories here were almost written as a, as assignments. Sometimes, as like right. um, this this has to be in by here. And sometimes I find uh, there's nothing more enlivening than a deadline. Sometimes <laughs> like, we're like uh, nothing clears the whatever nothing clears the head like a hanging in the morning. So like uh, so some of these some of these were definitely uh, opportunities, I suppose, where someone right. said, "Do you think you could do something?" And a structure was a, a, a limitation was placed on it, and that that helped a lot. Right. So. Um, but I definitely believe everything, like the reason Alice Munro's contribution is so key to, to Canadian literature and Canadian culture is that she definitely saw that uh, the, it, was the, it was the lack of time or, or the artist's restrictions right. that, that created that tension in so much of her work. So, so how, however, however they were caused and in Alice Munro's life, we know they were caused differently at different stages of her life. Same sure. as, uh, same as my dad's or anything like, like, like they were, they were like, I had one set of restrictions when I was 20 or 30 and they were different when I was 50, but I was always restricted in some way. Right, and right. Um, 
and and she she was able to turn that into very useful tension i feel narrative tension anyway Right. It's interesting that you talk about uh, the different stages in your life because it has been uh, 12 years since lightweight <laughs> appeared. And, and I gather that these stories were written um, not like in a one rush, but they were written over a period of time. Reading the collection from start to finish, though, I get the sense that they're more mature stories, not in terms of the style, but in terms of the considerations and the content. Were, are you conscious of the fact that you were writing these at a different stage in your life and did that impact the writing process at all or what you wanted to write about? Well, they're different than they're different than the stories in light lifting, but I think they could all I think they could all sit together with each right. other only as the movement of time. This 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 book is more interested in the movement of time in maybe a slower curve. We right. talked about this before you and I that in the first book I had like you know, uh, distance runners who were like measuring time by the 10th of a second, like their right. lives were so intense, their lives were so intense that significances were being seen between like a 336 and a 339, like three seconds would matter a lot to them. Right. But here, I'm interested almost in, in, in wider time, maybe. So I have lots of moments where kids are hanging out with older people, um, intergenerationally, I suppose. And so I was just measuring time. I was measuring time with a different instrument, I suppose. Right. Uh, and that's something that I'm really interested in, that that what you can notice with a stopwatch, what you can notice in geological time, what you can notice in generational time. Time is, time is definitely a, a consideration in this book, for sure. Well, and where time is concerned and, and sort of the, the extent of an entire life, one of the, the interesting stories is uh, Once Removed which just appeared um, at the beginning of the year in The New Yorker, uh, which takes place um, in a, a, a condo um, centered around, sort of, it's not, she insists it's not an old folks home. Yeah, seniors, seniors <laughs> condo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the female, the, the, the protagonist, Greet, uh, whose name I love, mm -hmm. insists it's not an old folks home, it is a condominium. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is so many them dear and it deals with these these two characters uh the one of whom um basically uh, appropriates um physical possessions from other um residents in the in the the old folks home who don't want their heirs to get their hands on them and i was fascinated mm -hmm. at this character as an older woman because i think this is the first time you you've put an, an old like a woman of that age at the center of one of your stories if i'm not mistaken well you remember uh in the other book i did have a guy i i've always been interested in this relationship in the other book i had a guy who delivers prescriptions do you remember him right. and, and, yeah. and so, yeah. so so i'm i am interested in that dynamic where like a young person is staring at an older person right and and they understand each other differently like they're in the same room at the same time right but they're not in the same place right and so uh that was something that i found dramatically um interesting and i was shocked absolutely shocked that that was the story that the new yorker wanted i thought, <laughs> it, was, I thought it was i thought i thought that one had like uh no chance but in but in the end that was the one that they thought they thought there was something in there with greet like they thought yeah. that Greek was um like the, the question about greet that I'm asking in the story and that I think the characters come to ask is like, 
what is her motivation for doing this? Because right. she doesn't, she's not accumulating possessions. She doesn't want any right. of this stuff, yeah. right? She's just taking care of it uh, till her own energy runs out. And, and I thought that, uh, I thought that in that case, there are three generations, three generations of the same family in the room at the same time. And, and they are, uh, yeah, they are understanding themselves in very different ways. Right. Right. And uh, you talk about um, Greet's, you know, obsession with collecting all of this material. And she doesn't really collect it because, as you say, in a, in a number of cases, there are things that she has no use for and she doesn't even want. She just puts them in a room and closes the door. But I wonder, you know, what you think about what her obsession with rescuing these pieces says about the dynamics of family relationships and her notion of the way people respond to the end of their lives and when they can see that coming in the you know in the not too distant future well one of the things that i was interested in that story is that something has happened to greet like the story is kind of an atlantic canadian story i suppose in that greet is from one of those multi-generational families uh you know from the kind of where i'm from on the west coast of right Cape Breton, but she's not anymore. Like she, she, she had to go for some reason, uh, and it's never, it's never completely uh, explored as to what her personal history is. But we know that she has been herself, you know, once removed. So, so it's it's a it's a question about how we um, fit into each other's lives, how we fit into our own lives. And then how we fit into strangers' lives. That was something I was very interested in because in this case, uh, Greet is kind of looking out for one of her friends or she's looking out for, for somebody. Uh, and so she has to go to her family very distantly. <laughs> she has to turn to, like, she has to turn to her family relationships right. such as they are. Right. Uh, such as they are. And and what I was trying to do in the story is I like this is a thing that a short fiction can do like by parking it by parking it in one character's perspective for most of the story and then turning it right like most of us most of us have had to dutifully visit somebody once in our lives and we feel like we're the one doing the favor like right. we feel like oh i'm going to visit the old lady so i wanted that idea of being hard done by to be parked in one character and then to to turn it right. in a way that maybe nobody saw coming and then she sees herself differently and she has a great well I, i'm not sure if she has a great love for greet at the end but she 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 sees a better connection between herself and greet than she did at the beginning that's for sure right right you went when you first referred to greet as the boyfriend's father's mother's oldest sister i thought well that's weirdly specific but then you know mm -hmm. it becomes apparent uh, you know why this relationship is important as the story goes on uh, i also note that this volume is dedicated to your mother and father and mm -hmm. i wonder you know you having come from that background that large family background what's the importance of family to you in both your life and your fiction because families keep cropping up in your stories well, I think that family is the great, you know, the great, the great mystery of the self, the self and other. So all, all, you kind of learn about yourself with them 
and then you also learn about difference from them. Right. So I'm, I'm interested in, in families are the first place we learn about difference. Maybe we carve ourselves up differently. Like we say, oh, there, there are many people I'm like or not like, but I'm sure not like my sister or I'm sure not like my brother. Right. Uh, we could do these little distinctions. But, but then we are like them as well. So I was interested in negotiating. Um, I was trying to figure out even like where I sit. So, so I dedicate the book to my, my parents because uh, I, I was thinking about like where they were when they were the age I am now. Right. And, um, you know, where those adults were at the same stage as I am with some of my uh, some of my kids or my brother's kids right. or my sister just had a baby two days ago so uh, uh, three days ago so so I see this person newly born sort of like this and I'm like well I'm going to have a relationship with you my sister's son right. uh, for the rest of my life then his life is going to go like it's, it's just one of those things family especially intergenerational stuff that's the thing that i'm most interested in like i think most of us are so demographically maybe the internet does this but that you're only hanging around with people who are like i don't know like 10 years older or younger right that that's your cohort that's your cohort but um but families oof, you're having a gender you're having a relationship <laughs> with someone who's 90 and a relationship with someone who's nine, right? And just in the middle. So uh, I find that, um, you know, I hope tender and sympathetic, but it's also pretty brutal. So there's there's right. some dance there between like times arrow. <laughs> you know, this is the way this goes. It's only going one way, and just know where you are in this arc. Right. Um, that was very important to me. I also found an affinity of sorts between uh, once removed and um the story about the the guy who steals the luggage from the airport carousels um spoiler alert <laughs> is that a spoiler i'm not sure i don't think so i think it comes up, i think it comes up pretty quick it's comes pretty up pretty early quick. in the story that we're, we're told yeah, yeah. um uh, the story is called what exactly do you think you're looking at which is kind of like taking alice monroe's who do you think you are and ratcheting it up a notch um an extra but, crank yeah an extra extra an extra turn of the uh, the crank um but i wonder about the the idea of possessions and what they tell us about people is that something that interests you in terms of oh, so, how they reveal character yeah well certainly my lonely guy see the lonely guy who who goes through the suitcases is probably the wealthiest person i've ever imagined in my life he could <laughs> have he could have anything right? right that was the thing that i was interested in like all, he 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 could possess anything right and because because he could possess anything nothing has any significance to him and he feels very alone right so um yeah that's a very interesting comparison that i never thought of before between him and greet where they both they both could be surrounded by objects and the person who has nothing <laughs> has all the, the person who has nothing has all this wealth and the right. person who has everything is just alone and that happens a lot like you see right. that a lot that the, the bare minimalist modernist you know clutter-free um scandy house of the wealthy right. uh and uh and the uh, hoarders in their kind of hovels so um 
but in his case anyway he's looking not for the object but for the connection right. so like if there was if there was an object uh that he could find a very private object then that would provide uh, a connection for him but um it's, it's not he's having a hard time with that to say the right. least right. we're listening to stephen Beatty in conversation with alexander mcleod Let's pause for just a moment to get a short taste of the prose from his second collection, Animal Person. Lagomorph. Some nights, when the rabbit and I are both down on the floor playing tug-of-war with his toy carrot, he will suddenly freeze in one position and stop everything, as if a great breakthrough has finally arrived. He'll look over at me and there will be a shift his quick glance steadying into a hard stare. I can't escape when he does this and I have to look back. He has these albino eyes that go from a washed out bloody pink ring on the outside through a middle layer of slushy gray before they dump you down into this dark, dark red center. I don't know, but sometimes when he closes in on me like that and I'm gazing down into those circles inside of circles inside of circles, I lose my way, and I feel like I'm falling through an alien solar system of lost orbits, rotating around a collapsing, burning sun. Our rabbit, my rabbit now, I guess, he and I are wrapped up in something I don't completely understand. Even when I imagine that I'm reading him correctly, I know that he is reading me at the same time and doing a better job of it, picking up on all my subconscious cues and even the faintest signals I do not realize I am sending out. It's complicated, this back and forth. Maybe we've been spending a little too much time together lately. Maybe I have been spending a little too much time thinking about rabbits. As a species, let me tell you, they are fickle, stubborn creatures, obsessive and moody, quick to anger, utterly unpredictable and mysterious, unnervingly silent too but they make interesting company. You just have to be patient and pay close attention and try hard to find the significance in what very well could be their most insignificant movements. Sometimes it's obvious. If a rabbit loves you, or if it thinks you are the scum of the earth, you will catch that right away. But there is a lot between those extremes. Everything else is in between, and you can never be sure where you stand relative to a rabbit. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. I want to talk about two specific stories because they're two of the, the most fascinating for me in the book and the collection. Uh, so I want to start with Lagomorph, which is the opening story in the collection. It won the O. Henry Prize. Um, and it also appeared in uh, an artisanal hardback edition from Gasparo Press, which I understand you helped produce. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It, well, that's a that's an Andrew Steve special. So <laughs> uh, I think you may be familiar with the artistry of Andrew Steve, who is my very good friend here. Uh, and so 
we just received this uh, Nova Scotia Lieutenant Governor's Prize for that, our, our collaboration on it. And uh, yes, uh, Andrew will teach you all about the quality of uh, printing, printing what, as the, uh, the art of the printmaker. Yeah, so. What was it like watching him put this together or, or collaborating with him on this, on the creation? Of this? Well, it's devastating. It's devastating. <laughs> like it, 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 it's so beautiful that you almost can barely like, he, he, it's a linotype. So like every single right. letter. So unlike those of us who are like, whatever, screwing around with our keyboards, right. like Andrew is, Andrew cast every single letter of the story and he commissioned a woodcut from Wesley Bates and he did all the end papers. So like every right. object, every object he touched with his hands, I touched with my hands. I did like a couple pages, the center pages, but even I going to work on the text like that. Um, and I care a lot about books, but I don't care. I can't care. At the level of detail that, right. that Andrew cares. So it was a beautiful, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to have one of your friends do this. And then we did it together. And it was very, very, very special to me. It's a fascinating story that deals with the dissolution of a marriage. And it does so through the, the husband slash ex-husband's relationship with the pet rabbit that is the, the titular lagomorph of the story. I kind of see the rabbit Gunter as as a symbol of innocence and then of course with again without going into spoilers um there's violence that befalls it as a metaphor for what happens in the relationship um what what was your thinking when you when you created this relationship between the man and this pet what were you working at um well I was interested the the almost the key concept in the whole thing is the allergy um so so the 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 uh and i'm obviously uh very interested in animals and in uh animal consciousness right. so um uh i i wanted the rabbit because the rabbit literally has big ears and no mouth right it just lit it's just a witness like it's right. a super it's a supernatural hearing machine so it witnesses everything, but it makes no sound. Right. So I was interested in that concept of language, like language only as as a uh, as something that is absorbed rather than um, expressed. Right. So so the rabbit would only take it in, and then you, the, the opening scene is him staring at the rabbit, and and knowing that the rabbit is thinking or that the rabbit recognizes certain sounds that are the signature sounds of uh, of their lives right. but the man is allergic to the rabbit as some people are allergic to cats and so i was i was interested in the way the way love is sort of a compromise between you know the thing we desire and the thing we're affectionate towards and the you know, inevitable, inevitable, and I really meant this, like inevitable, right. uh, natural pain that that comes. And I really like that idea of like, I know you don't mean this. I know you don't mean to hurt me. Right. Uh, this is just your skin or something. And so when that couple falls apart, they aren't, they aren't angry at each other. Like they aren't, it's not, it's not like anybody did anything wrong. It's right. just sort of 
the relationship has run its course. Right. And again, that has a lot to do with time and a lot to do with time and the forces of compromise. And you're like, okay, we could compromise this much for this long, but don't you both, don't we both agree that we're compromised enough now? Right. Right. And, and they say, yep. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so, the, so I was interested in trying to find an, an image or a, a, uh, a scene that, that, that could, try to negotiate you know right. what i felt is a, is a more it's a more delicate thing than i hate your guts or i love you it's right. it's it's something in between yeah. right and there is that that moment of of violence that befalls the rabbit which i kind of flipped back to reading the last story or i should say rereading the last story uh in the book the closing date which i first encountered in the uh anansi the 2016 anthology sex and death and i have mm -hmm. to tell you it was one of the creepiest things that i had read in a long long time and i don't want to <laughs> talk too much about the plot because i this is one of those stories that i do think is is um, works better if you come to it completely cold but there is both sex and death in this story and i was wondering what you, the relationship of those two things for you is in fiction well uh most writers i hope the good ones as you know they're trying to deal with things that are not easy to deal with right. but that are again unavoidable right. so maybe sex and death are tidal forces and everybody individually thinks that they're experiencing it like uh oh here comes the drama around sex or here comes the drama around death right but for writers or for film producers or for like they're like, well, how are you dealing with sex or how are you dealing with death? Like, like they they have seen its treatment in a myriad of of different ways. Right. So, so um in that 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 was I mean, that that's that that story was an assignment, right? They gave us just that. They said, write about sex and death. Like that right. was the and and so uh <laughs> I think I took it as literally as you could possibly think. <laughs> like uh without without too many spoilers like I I I I embraced that assignment <laughs> right. uh, um because I did think that that uh at a crucial moment in the story those two base instincts would intersect right. and one would be seen as life giving and the other would be seen as life subtracting uh but both would be inside of the, there's a moment in that story and it happens a couple times where again i try to flip the camera like i try right. to right. roll it so right. that the people who are doing what they think they're doing are put into a weird perspective right and this camera angle this camera angle maybe shows an intimacy or a kind of connection that maybe we wouldn't, we couldn't see from just between our own eyes. You do that in the story with greet. You do that in the closing date, but it's very explicit in what may be the outlier in animal person from a, a narrative perspective, which is the entertainer, which is a story that is told explicitly from three, three, I think three different mm -hmm. perspectives and they're headed um, with the names of the people that they're told from. Um, I'm interested in that story because it's so different in terms of the technical approach from anything else that, that appears in these two collections. Did you decide you wanted to write a polyvocal story and then come up with the situation or did it work the other way around? Was it a form follows function thing? Uh, it was the other way around. Um, I knew I had been to uh, the, this, this is a story that takes place uh, in a piano recital 
again in but this time it really is in a in an old age home uh it's a piano recital that takes place in the basement of a um the basement of an old folks home uh and i knew after sitting in one of those that whoa uh everybody here is experiencing this like there are three people here and they are experiencing it all differently right and then I had children who were taking piano lessons and I was learning about the fugue structure, like what a fugue is. And right. I, I didn't know enough, but then it was like, oh, a fugue is three voices, maybe four on a, on a recurrent theme. They keep coming back to the theme and they all combine at the, at the end. Um, and then I don't think I was, I was interested in that as an intellectual, um, like Bach is amazing at them, but but right. I was interested in I was interested in in English grammar. We have the first, second, and third person. So I, I often think that writing in the second person is gimmicky and and kind of, you know, sometimes it's great. Yeah. But I wanted to show it. So in that case, like when I first submitted that story, it didn't have any of their names. It was okay. just first. It was just the grammar would be enough that you'd see like, whoa, this. This section's in first person, this section's in second person, this section's in third. Right. And then at the end, first, second, third, like you should see the the document, like every grammatical thing in the third section is is underlined in blue because it doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make grammatical sense. Because you can't have you can't have those three subjects there at the same time. Right. But I was I was trying to. Um, so yeah, I was in the I was in the recital myself, sitting in the chair. Um, I was looking around. I was listening to the horrible music. <laughs> <laughs> that story does though, really, it reads like a symphony with different point counterpoint pieces playing off one another. So, uh, you know, it works very well with the subject, I think. Well, thank you. I, 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 it was, it was a risky piece and I didn't want it to be, I did not want it to seem like there's a lot of emotion in that piece. So I didn't want, I didn't want the, I didn't want the honest emotion of it. Right. to be buried in the gimmick right. so i wanted to seem like the only way i could hit it was to hit it like that like right. kind of right. approach it from approach it from three angles at once but it's tricky it was definitely the hardest one it was definitely the hardest one to balance right right uh, your writing has been called muscular uh which i <laughs> bit of a cliche, um, frankly, yes, yes. Um, I, I can I can detect certain influences in your writing, I can detect the influence of your father in your writing, I can detect Raymond Carver, um, I can even detect some Hemingway in some of your stories, but the person who stands out most for me, and perhaps this is just me is Flannery O'Connor. Um, both because of the use of violence, which she says, you know, the moments of violence are the moments where characters are most essentially themselves, but also because she insisted that short stories and, and fiction have to start with a very concrete base. They have to embed themselves in the physical world, which your writing really does. She said that writing starts with the senses, proceeds from the senses. Um, is, is that sort of, are those principles, principles that you use to that, that inform your writing or do you disagree with her about that brother if you could just say oh he, he's got a lot of flannery and i might just feel like that on my <laughs> uh, i do i definitely have a lot of uh have a lot of uh flannery o'connor influences but the thing that the thing that i'm the thing that i always feel about flannery o'connor which is what i'm hoping for if i could 
make it go in my stories is is you may think that Flannery at first that Flannery O'Connor's people are just chitter chatting or they're just like just a lot of banter or or it is definitely physical oh there we are again in the hayloft with the good country people or or here we are um you know on the bus or we're, we're, we're in all these places that Flannery O'Connor's stories always put us but then by the end boom you're like nope always was in a work of art like right. I was always in an artifice right like everything that seems so natural or these seem like characters every one of these is a is a figure right, right. like so so you're you're trying like I always feel with Flannery O'Connor that she's just sweeping up her own footprints as she backs out like a, <laughs> like kind of kind of trying to to hide the artifice right. until at the end you're like whoa that is as that is as polished a thought exercise as you could almost ever do right. but you didn't realize you were in a thought exercise or you didn't realize that she was grappling with something that is impossible to grapple with in terms of language so right. i always love the i always love in a flannery o'connor story uh the the way the least articulate people are the most articulate like they, right. they just say right. boom they just like drop a line and everybody right. else who was hazel moats i always <laughs> uh, like a lot 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 of lot of lot of people like that are uh, yeah. are influential to me for sure uh, another writer that uh, comes to mind um, where your fiction is concerned is um, the fellow Atlantic Canadian, Lisa Moore. Uh, when I talked to her about her latest collection, Something for Everyone, which appeared, I think, 16 years after Open, um, mm -hmm. I asked her, you know, what, what took her so long? And she said that she could take up to eight years to write a single story. Are, is your process the same? Is it that, you know, is it that? arduous that lengthy or does it vary from story to story? I guess what I'm asking you is is you know what we talked about light lifting and I said well what's your next book you said you didn't know whether there was going to be one and yet 12 years later here we are well I have a ton of admiration for Lisa and what I know about Lisa's craft or her practice just like lots of the writers um that I know personally from around here right. um um is that they are working on it like they are working on it even when they're not working on it like they, right. they don't have to they're not working on it just like you couldn't just say oh you you must have your butt in the chair and you must be you must have your fingers on the keyboard in right. order to be working on it because lots of lisa's images especially the ones in open or or in the last collection too uh these are things you can see that the artist has been ruminating on it isn't just like like even though i say that i was writing to deadlines most of the most of the um most of the assignments like i had notions of uh of of something i had been thinking about that could fit into that slot right. i suppose right. so so the questions that are in this book yes i have been some of them i was thinking about them um you know even as i was putting together light lifting and there's a i know uh anita or the people like there's a story that i worked on for like three years that still didn't make the cut for this book that i was like oh just couldn't couldn't get it in the end to fit and so like uh, but i did like if you had the if you had the time 
I had sat with one story about a physiotherapist for three years and I just couldn't get it to click. Uh, So I've I've, I've often said that when I look at the book, I thought I thought it was going to be the center, but I could just never get it to work. So right. Uh, we've almost, we've kind of blown over our time, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave without asking you one question because this book is published by McClellan and Stewart, which is the, the house that published your father, mm-hmm. knowing how important your father's writing was to you, your father's publication. What is it like for you? Does it feel like a homecoming to, to land at MS? Well, uh, you and I both know that, uh, uh, I have nothing but the greatest, uh, nothing but the greatest love for Dan. Uh, Dan Wells and Biblioasis, and I love everything. At, at I love the writers. I teach the books all the time. Um, but when uh, when this happened, and and um, and it was time for these stories to go into the world, there was definitely something. And and I think it's tricky for all of us, and you know it better than anybody. Like perhaps the McClellan and Stewart of 2022 is not the McClellan and Stewart of 1972, sure. right? Uh, but as a scholar and a person who follows that, I, I know I know what happened. Like I know what happened, as do you. What happened, kind of every every decade of that transition to this weird multinational weird multinational world that we live in now but it was important to me just straight up it was important to me uh to be uh with them and i have great uh great respect for anita and for jared and 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 what i have great respect for what everyone's trying to do in canadian literature um but uh but it didn't matter to me it it did it it was significant to me because i because I did know Ellen and um, and Anita was underneath uh, Ellen, and uh, there were a couple moments where I was working, um, and I was in Dunvegan in the, a couple of years ago, and I was on the exa- definitely on the exact same phone, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> using the, definitely using the exact same uh, landline phone. Uh, and a call was coming from McClellan and Stewart to that phone, uh, and I was trying to work it out the same way so i felt i felt for me anyway there was something there was something meaningful in that for me alexander mcleod uh we've run out of our allotted time unfortunately um but i want to thank you so much for the gift of animal person and uh i hope that uh, readers will go out and and purchase it at their local indies um it is me too every bit as strong as light lifting and i'm glad that certainly the the 12 years were worth the wait (laughs) thank you so much Stephen, and thank you to the festival for uh giving us this form means a lot that was Stephen Beattie in conversation with alexander mcleod his collection animal person is available now thanks to all our patrons volunteers and donors and thanks to the government of canada the government of ontario the city of ottawa the ontario arts council the canada council for the arts ottawa public library carlton university and cbc for their ongoing support this podcast is produced by aaron flynn original music and sound engineering by mike dubay kira harris is our program director and i'm sean wilson thank you for listening